Well, Damon, it feels right to be talking about motor racing on Easter Monday. How's that work? The first race meeting I ever went to was the F2 meeting at Thruxton. I think it was 1980. For a lot of British racegoers, it was a, an annual trip, wasn't it, to go and see tomorrow's F1 stars. I think that year, 1980, was won by Derek Warwick. You must have been to lots of Easter Monday race meetings with the old man. I probably did. It would have been probably under sufferance. I wasn't particularly into motor racing when I was very young. It was just something that we did. It wasn't like motor racing for me, Formula One was something that I was attracted to. It was something I was born in. And so if we were to go somewhere, I'm trying to think, it probably would have been somewhere like Brands Hatch, wouldn't it? But um, anyway, yes, definitely. Racing on, the, on Easter weekend was, was the done thing. But I remember going to see the, I think it was the transatlantic motorcycle races. That, that was the Easter weekend was, for me, when I first got into motor racing, I got in through the motorcycles. So motorcycles were my thing. Yeah, I seem to remember them racing on Easter weekends, yes. At Brands Hatch? Um, yeah, I think it was at Brands Hatch, yeah. And we, we occasionally have an Easter day Grand Prix, don't we? So it's it's not unusual at all. But anyway, as it is this week, we are at home and we're talking to you on F1 Nation. It is, of course, Damon Hill and Tom Clarkson with you this week. And why don't we start by throwing it back to last week in Melbourne? I mean, what a weekend that was. The weather wasn't any better than it was in the UK. What are your reflections of, of that weekend, Damon? I, I thought it was encouraging i should say because i i I just saw that it looked like some people were starting to sort their cars out they were trying to sort out while mercedes was seemingly making some progress in the inroads to bring some challenge to red bull but these early races can be misleading and we we sort of our heads were in our hands a little bit after bahrain and then things got a little bit more interesting at saudi i thought and i thought i saw signs of the Mercedes particularly, having made a leap forward after the Friday, the car just looked completely different on the Saturday, and it sort of continued right through to Melbourne. And I don't know if people remember, but when they showed the onboards last year, you got used to this blimmin' bouncing. It just sounded awful. The cars, as they got towards the end of the straight, they were doing this scraping noise, this kind of oscillation, which um, was famously the big problem. By the way, why is it called porpoising? Because is that how porpoises swim through the water? They sort of go up and down, they do, up and down. But it's not called dolphining because you can't, basically <laughs> you can't say dolphining. The way you asked the question made me think you've got an answer. To well, it. it occurred to me that why did they choose a porpoise? Because people will usually say a dolphin, but you can't say dolphining. It's impossible. You try it anyway. Oh, so, see, it was the inging. The inging doesn't work, so it had you to can be say porpoising. <laughs> but you can't say dolphining. <laughs> Many of the drivers just call it bouncing, don't they? Probably for that reason. Yes, yeah, so it, was, but it had this awful soundtrack. The guy was jumping up and down, and scr- this scraping noise coming from the back of the car. Anyway, that's gone. It's hardly noticeable at all. Are you talking about the Mercedes specifically or in general? All of them seem to have cracked this problem. They seem to be getting there with setup. And they start to control the aerodynamics or they're changing the, the fundamental setup. And I think that Fernando Alonso's come out and said something interesting which is that he feels that we're going to now start to see as we get back to Europe when people can more effectively bring modifications they've had a bit of a time this this is not like the summer break they don't shut the factory down there has not been any racing there's time for people to take a breath produce parts and improvements to their cars and if they have space in their 
wind tunnel allocation, then we might start to see some real changing of the order, the competitiveness relative to Red Bull. I'm not saying Red Bull aren't going to carry on. But anyway, does that answer the question? Because I've talked for quite a long time on this one. I've forgotten forgotten what the question was. (laughs) Well, you were talking about Mercedes and then then the lack of bouncing... um, porpoising, dolphining is a really good point. I think helped, of course, by the, the ride heights going up by 15 mil this year. But I worry that the Mercedes performance was track specific because for whatever reason, they suddenly got that car into the right window in Q3 on Saturday cold conditions, a very smooth track surface, and suddenly it came alive when others didn't come alive. And let's not forget that the Red Bull had been more than a second a lap faster in Saudi just two weeks earlier uh, in the race than any other car on the grid. So while I think Mercedes definitely got into the window, we did see them get that car into the window last year. Remember the Spanish Grand Prix? I think we all came away from that race uh, when, you know, Lewis, I think, had to come from the back after uh, an issue early on. I can't quite remember what it was, but he charged through the field. George Russell, very competitive, dicing with Max Verstappen. And we thought, wow, this Mercedes concept is something special. We then went to the next race and it was nowhere. So they've now got to prove to us that they can do it race after race. And, and we haven't seen them do it race after race yet this year. And then they're bringing all these changes to Baku or so we're led to believe. Yeah, so I think for the benefit of our listeners, I think that it's worth pointing this out. Bahrain, although it was very hot in the daytime sessions, the track temperature does cool off. Very abrasive, hard-working circuit. So the track temperature, the tyre temperature is a big issue because the next race we go to is Saudi, less abrasive track, and it's a night race. So there is a tyre temperature and the tyre durability anomaly, let's say, for these races. They were unusual in that sense. So when we get to... Europe and we do daytime stuff, it's going to be interesting to see whether the warm track temperatures and maybe maybe slightly softer tyre, Pirelli bringing a slightly more stickier tyre that isn't as durable, might have an influence. I mean, I, my suspicion is if you went to a circuit that was a tyre eater, that Red Bull might be better off than most again. So Melbourne, front limited, and, and by that we mean, you know, that's where... Uh, the energy, the more energy has been put through the, the front axle, the front tyres than the rear. And then we go to Baku in a few weeks' time, which is all about the rear axle and, and getting that power down. And, and every time we've been at that kind of a racetrack this year, the Red Bull has dominated. But it'll be interesting to see what these upgrades do. What I found very refreshing about Melbourne was that Merck have lost none of their strategic prowess, given that James Vowles has now left the team and he's team principal of Williams. It was interesting to see them being so proactive and aggressive on the strategy in Melbourne. Of course, George Russell making that pit stop and without any of the red flags, Toto Wolff thinks he could have challenged for the win. I don't actually agree with him. I think the Red Bull had the legs of everybody last week but for Mercedes to be so aggressive and so on it from a strategic point of view proves that you know James Vowles has gone he was their head strategist but they managed to fill the void very effectively and they're still a very slick brilliant racing team and I think that was very encouraging so that when Mercedes get their car together whether it's after they've changed the concept whether they manage to hone the current concept they're going to be able to to take the fight to Red Bull. I'm absolutely convinced of it. They've lost none of their edge, despite 
a difficult 2022. The thing about Melbourne, to point out again, is it was interesting, was the shoe was on the other foot a little bit, wasn't it? Because Mercedes had the option. They had two drivers threatening Max. And so, but Max was all alone because he'd lost Sergio. Sergio was down the back with his own battles. And so they couldn't do this game where you, you go, okay, well, I'm go- one of our guys is going to do one thing and the other guy's going to do the other thing. So now you're covered. The guy at the front hasn't got the option of, of the luxury, let's say, of choosing his tyre choice. So he's sort of stuck with whatever the guy who's newest to him has got. So that was interesting that they had got that option. They played that card. And you're right, I think they were on it. I think Mercedes were very threatening in the sense that they're, they're tactically they were, they were astute and they were using both their drivers and they had the luxury of having two extremely fast, brilliant drivers in their team. So that gives us a strength to them. I'm not saying that Sergio's not. I'm saying that in that particular race, Sergio had his issues in qualifying and was, was out of the frame. So things will get really interesting if you get Sergio back up the front and you've got two Mercedes or, you know, we're, and we're, let's not forget Ferrari, they will sort this out. Somehow they've got to find out what they're doing wrong. I mean, they're, they're not that bad. You know, they shouldn't be where they are. But so it's conceivable that they could find a way forward and join the fray. And, that, and then it becomes really interesting when you've got races where teams choose to put drivers on different strategies. And it can always be immensely frustrating to drivers, particularly if they're in the latter stages of a championship, because a team might say something which is detrimental. So this is what happened with Charles Leclerc, obviously, at Ferrari, where you know, he was not given preference, or he was given the, the, the wrong strategy or the strategy that benefited or covered the team from a competitive point of view. And it, but it actually, from his point of view, put him at a disadvantage to his teammate because of you got this lovely contradiction in our sport where you have two championships going on at the same time and the teams run everything. So the drivers have very little control, and this is this is why you have Max is so forceful. And I've heard this; I've heard a similar thing coming from George Russell as well, which is he's very forceful. You might even say Carlos Sainz and Ferrari; they direct to the team, and of course Fernando Alonso. You know these drivers; they direct the team from the cockpit. They can swing it. You know, they, if the team is not bothered either way, then it, you know it is possible to get what you want for your strategy for a particular race, but you have to think quickly. I'm fascinated by the teammates at Mercedes, uh, George Russell, Lewis Hamilton, in that George, I think, is a lot more outspoken this year, not only about his own team. Remember last week he came out accusing Red Bull of sandbagging. They don't want to reveal their true pace because they're terrified of regulations being changed against them. Of course, the FIA can only change the regulations mid-season on safety grounds. But still, you know, I think the team's... George is implying that Red Bull are living in fear that something's going to happen to slow them down. But also within the team, intra-team battle between him and Lewis Hamilton. I, You know, in the press conference after qualifying, they'd qualified second and third in Melbourne. Max, of course, on pole. And every time a question was posed to both of the Mercedes drivers... Lewis was quite happy for George to answer the question first. He almost became the spokesperson for the team in that press conference. And I was interested as to why Lewis was happy to just sit back and let that happen. I don't know whether he's sort of keeping his powder dry. And I don't know how you racing drivers work, Damon, but is he trying to sort of give him a 
sort of false hope of being the dominant person and then he's going to really hit him hard where it matters most on the stopwatch later on. I, I don't know what his thought process was, but it was interesting anyway to observe that he very much let George be the man. You don't know how us racing drivers work, Tom. How many years have you been doing this? <laughs> you do know, and you've interviewed more racing drivers than I have, probably. I mean, I've, okay, well, it's all mind games, isn't it? We're competitive <laughs> and we kind of political as well, in that you have to be aware of, let's say, rising forces or rising empires, let's say, or uh, you know, and and within the team, uh, there is going to be George has to work very hard. He has to make himself a valued asset of the team. And he's obviously doing that really well. But at the same time, he's the one that has to do all the hard work. I think Lewis doesn't have to. They know what they've got with Lewis. And they know that given half a sniff of a chance, Lewis is going to be back on on top form, you know, and can deliver those extraordinary races. They know that George can do that too, but he has yet to prove all that. So I think Lewis is very good. He'll have sussed this out. And he'll be sitting there thinking, well, okay, I'll let you do all the hard work. George, because, you know, it's exhausting doing all this, uh, apart from anything else. You know, he's also, what is he, the director of the GPDA or the president or the... Anyway, so he's got a big workload, George. He's taken on quite a lot. But I think Lewis, his strategy has always been to remove as many distractions as possible and and leave time for downtime and, and clarity and stuff like that. So I think he tends to, in the last few years, even with Valtteri, Lewis has taken a kind of what appears to be kind of a slightly relaxed approach to the start of the season and then lets things unfold. And then eventually when he gets, he sees an opportunity, then he starts to step on the gas and, and, and then disappear into the distance. Which we saw a little bit in Melbourne, although it is 3-0 to George Russell in qualifying in that Mercedes battle. 2-1 to Max Verstappen against Sergio Perez at Red Bull. And at Ferrari, it's 3-0 to Charles Leclerc. Yeah, maybe we can talk about that, you know, the arrival of the younger, faster driver, because you will know that this has happened a lot in the past. You know, when Nicky Lauda had Prost arrive, or there are, let's say, young, the younger driver, the older, more experienced driver is faced with, with the speed of a, a young arrival in the team. They've got an option. They can get depressed about it, or they can you know, throw their hands up in the air and say it's all over, or they can devote their energies to making sure that the outcome in the race is actually the thing that matters. And so they, they may give up a little bit in qualifying, except in their late 30s, they can no longer do those absolutely absurd kind of transcendental laps that they used to be able to do when they were in their 20s. And they can focus on getting somewhere in the race. Were you slower at 39 than you were age 33? Um, when you say slower? Over um, one lap. I think you do things when you're younger. I can remember, for example, I was given an opportunity to test a motorbike and I would have been 20 years old. And this guy gave me this bike to, to try out. I just remember flying around this track and then the bike was trying to escape from underneath me. And part of my brain was going, why is a bike trying to get away from me? Nothing was done consciously at all. It was just simply, I want to go this fast and you're coming with me. And as you get older... You, and you've had a lot, more, a lot more experiences, maybe you've had some crashes, maybe it's gone wrong, then you kind of, your brain goes, okay, now I need to be more circumspect maybe than, than before. I wonder whether that is just a little bit of a factor when you start to get later on in your career that you go, well, the last thing I want to do now is stick it in the tyres over there. You know, how many times have you seen the really fast guys, they spend their first half a season crashing, you know, 
to use the spinal tap metaphor, they're on 12, you know, they're not on 10. You can wind the volume back down from 12 to 10, but you can't get something that's at 8 up to 10. Do you know? So if you've got a driver who needs to go faster, they're not fast. They get the pressure on them. They try to go faster and then they crash. Or you get the other guys who go way too fast and you have to slow them down. They're the Senna's, Schumacher's and that. It's possible to slow someone down, whereas it's actually impossible to make a, a slower driver go faster, isn't it? Yeah, they, 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 reach, they reach their ceiling, that's it. George is you know, super quick and he's reveling in his, you know, the early part of his career and he's got this speed. I don't know if Lewis has acknowledged that he can't match that or I'm sure he will do eventually, but I mean, it's possible that that instinctive, unconscious speed is starting to leave him. You know, it does happen. If that's the case then we'll see him be stronger in races than in quali, which is actually what we saw in Melbourne, isn't it? But it, hey, sample of one. I, I don't believe Lewis for a second is thinking he's slower than George Russell over one lap. These guys do not lose what it is they know how to do. Those days are rarer and they are harder to, to conjure up. You know, you have to sometimes be patient and wait for everything to come together. And of course, Formula One, any sport really doesn't wait long. You know, so the young guys... They flare up quickly, um, but sometimes they can be erratic. You know, but George is very actually of those types. He's incredibly. I, I think Silstone was a was a was a rash move that resulted in Jerguanu's accident. Um, I think he's occasionally done something rash. We saw Valtteri Bottas. The overtake on Valtteri Bottas was was a bit ill judged in Imola when they both got taken out. So he's had those impatient kind of moments, but. He's of that type. He's much more reliable, less prone to crashing, less prone to making mistakes than many of them. Also, Damon, it's his fifth year in Formula One. You know, you'd already won the world championship by the time you'd been in Formula One as long yeah, as Yeah, indeed. Him. Yeah. But only your fourth season of Formula One. I was 35, six before when I won the world championship. I'd learned all my mistakes had been done. Most, well, I'll say all of my mistakes. A lot of my mistakes had, had happened out of the public eye, let's say in the junior formulas when I was on my way up. So... Yeah, but, you know, the number of years in Formula 1 now, these things are... How many years is it that Max has been there? Seven years or something? Ridiculous. I mean, my entire career was only seven years long. I don't think I can compare my career to anyone else. But the point is, there's a maturity thing that comes into play, which is to do with literally just growing up. And then there's an F1 experience thing. So you can measure people in terms of their F1 maturity, let's say. You know, I think to throw someone in age 17 and expect them to win a world championship, if they had a car dominance capable of doing that, then I'm sure it's possible. I mean, Lewis very nearly won his first season in Formula 1. Well, I was about to say, wasn't it? If McLaren had put their weight behind Lewis, I think he could have won that 2007 season. And that overtake around the outside of Fernando Alonso in his very first race in Melbourne was proof that he was more than ready. But... Crucially, I remember Martin Whitmarsh, who was running McLaren at the time, forcing Lewis to do a second season of Formula 3. And I remember him being very frustrated by that, saying, no, I'm ready. Come on, let's go up to GP2. And they made him do it. And I think that extra experience just helped him be ready for that moment in 2007. He wouldn't have been quite as ready, I think, if he'd only had that one season in F3. So it's, as you say, it's all about experience, isn't it? I've got a question for you about Ferrari. They're now 97 points behind Red Bull after just three races. You can translate that 
one of two ways. Either absolute disaster, Ferrari in all sorts of trouble, or do you say, actually, the pressure's off their team principal, Fred Vasseur, now because the championship's gone already and now it's just all about making progress rather than going for the championship. So the pressure's off and he can just make the changes he wants to make, you know, not, not be governed by the need to, to win every race because they haven't done that. And, um, you know, yes, they've already submitted a petition to review Carlos Sainz's five-second penalty in Melbourne, but whether that works for them or not, I just feel that in a funny kind of way, the position Ferrari are in now will actually help Vasseur in the longer run. Can I just say, on, the, on that Carlos Sainz thing, the Carlos Saints five-second penalty in a race that didn't exist, that affected it, affected the outcome of the race that happened afterwards. I am still scratching my head over that. I think he does have a point. I mean, maybe what they should have done is, instead of giving him a five-second penalty in a race that didn't exist, is give him some points. You know, they could have that option to give drivers endorsements standing on their license. How can he have affected a race that it didn't affect? Because actually... It didn't affect Fernando Alonso. He was back, put back where he was. But if, if he'd taken Fernando out of the race, then definitely the race, the future race would have been affected. But what do you do about the two Alpines that crashed out in the race that didn't actually exist? Do you have to reinstate them if you go back? You know, so where do you draw the line? I think it's something that I've found difficult to work out the answer to. And I'm sure that that's the position that the, <laughs> the race directors will be in as well. Is it okay now? What do we do? It was an extraordinary head scratcher. Um, the whole of the last few laps uh, and the reactions have been mixed. Um, but I mean, in classic F1 style, there are two reactions. Oh, this is a joke. You know, Formula One is, is nonsense because they don't know what to do in the general press. And then there are people who go, this is fantastic because it is part of the enjoyment of the sport is, is this, the complexity of it. And that it creates situations that it is anyone's guess as to what's going to happen next. And I kind of like that about it. Yeah. It's very Formula One. Very the whole Formula thing. One, yeah. But uh, well, you did ask me about Ferrari, didn't you? About uh, Fred Vasseur. Yeah. So is the pressure off? Is it in a way, does the current predicament help him make the changes he needs to make away from the limelight if there is such a thing in Marinello? Do you mean because he can say, he can hold his hand up and say, well, listen, don't blame me. I just got here. Um, you know, I can't. Well, <laughs> I think he can and... hide behind that, absolutely. But also, you know, sometimes you might have to take a more conservative approach if you're fighting for a championship. You know, do we pit now? Do we take the aggressive strategy? No, we're going to just mirror what Red Bull are doing or something. Whereas now, now the championship's gone, race wins, bah, whatever. Let's just make this a better racing team. And he can do that now without the pressure of what happens on a Sunday afternoon. Okay, Tom, this is the bit I love. Uh, let's hear the burning questions that all the listeners have about Formula One. We've had some really interesting ones, some left field ones, which I like. Yeah. Actually, look, a quick shout out for anyone who still doesn't know about this. This is your chance to pose a question to me, to Damon, of course, to, to Natalie when she's on, to Pedro de la Rosa. You've got to record a voice note and send it to us at the following email address f1nation at f1.com all right and then we'll do our best to answer and we've got what is it four questions coming your way today why don't we have our first one it's carly here from bangor in county down 
My question is about Max Verstappen. What do you think it is that makes him just such an epic driver? Um, I know he has a really strong car this season, but what qualities, what personal qualities does Max have that enables him just to get the very most um, out of the car? Thanks. Bye. Well, obviously, he's bloody quick, right? That is a given. But I have never met a racing driver who is so hungry for success as Max Verstappen. I think that's an important component, isn't it? The hunger for success. In other words, what we call competitiveness or desire, burning desire to win. Um, That's a mindset, I think, is probably key. Uh, similar to Senna, similar to Schumacher, similar to many of the guys who won in our sport or in an sport. But there's a kind of ruthlessness to it as well, which is also, I think most people find it difficult to relate to that because in normal life, that is regarded as being selfish and it's regarded as being unattractive. But then it's a totally appropriate mindset for competing in a sport where the objective is to win. The objective is, you know, is not to do well, it's not to play nicely, it's to win. And so that is what he has. He, and where did he get that from? I'm sure. But his mother is also competitive and cart, a very successful karting lady. But Jos, racing from one, his dad, has made sure that, that Max, as he was growing up, was left in no uncertain terms, aware of that this is not worth doing it just for a bit of fun. You know, if you're going to get a thumb you want, you have to want to win or have to win. He doesn't just want to win. He wants to destroy the people around him, the, his closest competitors. And a, a classic case was Saudi. He started the race 15th. He drove a brilliant Grand Prix to finish second. And yet he was really disappointed after the race and came out with the line, I'm not here to finish second. You know, so many other people would have thought that's a great weekend. Look at Perez last weekend in, in Melbourne. He starts in the pit lane. He comes through to what was it? Fifth. And he was really happy. I can't imagine Max Verstappen being happy with fifth, even from a pit lane start. His mentality is unique. Yes, Lewis Hamilton is hugely competitive. Of course he is. Ditto Charles Leclerc. But there's a ruthlessness about Max that I don't see in the other guys. Um, Just a serial winner. He could, for as long as that Red Bull is competitive, Max is just going to keep winning. And he won't, he's one of those guys, he won't get bored of winning. The more he wins, the more he wants it. You know, we hear this phrase a lot these days. It's about the journey. (laughs) Do you think he's enjoying the journey? Actually, I do think he is much calmer now than he was nine years ago when he first came into Formula One. Uh, Just, I suppose that just comes with familiarity of the environment you're in, but he is very calm. He is remarkable in that sense. When I look at Max... I don't see a weakness. I, I, I think he's strong everywhere. He's quick over one lap. I think he's, Racecraft is really good. I, I think the way he looks after his tyres is brilliant. I think he's able to read a race brilliantly. In fact, the more I look at Max, the more he reminds me of Fernando Alonso. Is he the fastest guy over one lap? He's brilliantly fast. He's certainly in the top three on the grid. But is he the fastest guy? Same car, Charles Leclerc or him? Not sure. But who is the fastest over a race? I can't. I actually think there is no one better than Max Verstappen now. I think lap, he's like a metronome. Lap after lap, he just bangs it in. And he's combined that with a ruthless attitude towards overtaking. And you've got yourself a serial winner. He's he's incredibly impressive. And, and I think 
his mentality is very similar to Fernando Alonso. And it doesn't surprise me when they each come out praising the other in the media, which they do quite a lot now, because I think they can see a little bit of the other uh, in themselves. And um, yeah, and Max is that Fernando Alonso of 2005-06. That's where we're at right now with him. And how good can he get? How can he chip away at just making himself better? And I think he does have that desire to get better as well. So it's quite frightening, actually, to think how good he could become. Yeah, I'm sure he'll get he'll get better. I think you're right, Tom. I think he has shown more maturity and, and measured in his application of his formidable talents in races. You know, he knows when to play, when to twist and when to stick. You know, he can push when he needs to. It's no good just going, there's no need to go flat out the whole time everywhere. He's always got it in his back pocket if he needs it. Um, so yeah, but a very accomplished and yes, the, the sky is the limit and I mean, it could be eight more titles. Let's go on to our next one now. Hi all, this is Anton from London. It's obviously been a really interesting start to the season for Lance Stroll where he's shown us plenty that we didn't know about him already. But how high do you think his ceiling is in this Aston Martin? Well, Anton, I think he's a really good racing driver. And we've talked about it uh, on this pod already this year. But we learned so much about him when he was coming back from that training accident uh, that happened just before testing. We saw a determination, a steely determination in him then, which I don't think we'd seen before. I think we'd all assumed it had been red carpet treatment from the moment he first drove a go-kart because of the wealth of his father. But no, that we saw that this is a guy who really wants it. We got a perhaps a glimpse of it too in the wet in Turkey a few years back when he got pole position. You know, you don't put it on pole in those sorts of conditions unless the desire is right there. And I think particularly in those sorts of conditions, I, th- I think Lance is really good. And in the right car, he can win races. And I know Fernando Alonso is now his teammate, but, you know, Fernando does go out of his way to big him up and say the guy is giving great feedback. Even when he wasn't at the pre-season test, he was joining all the calls via Zoom, giving his thoughts to both Felipe Drogovic, who was driving the car, and Fernando, of course, and just contributing. And yeah, so I do think he's good enough to win races in the right car. The Aston is not yet the right car to be winning races if a Red Bull finishes. But in a race where there's a bit of jeopardy, and there has been quite a lot of jeopardy in the races where he's finished on the podium so far. Baku 2017, jeopardy. Monza 2020, jeopardy. And of course, the outer loop when uh, Sergio Perez won in Sakir also that year. Again, more jeopardy. But he can win races. That's my feeling anyway. What about you, Damon? I think the question has been whether Lance has been... 100% 100% committed to this career <laughs> in his mind. You know, I get the sense that sometimes he's felt, I don't know if I want to be doing this. No. And, and until he makes that decision that this is 100% what he wants to be doing, then I think that his comeback well, after the broken wrist thing was, was evidence that he wasn't going to uh, let some a step back deprive him of his opportunity to get his hands on that car and, and race it. So I think that was a good indicator of his desire to compete. Was it when he got published and he said, I love this job or something mm. like that? Mm. He, he did, yeah. He said, I love this. I, I love this job. You know, it's the ups and downs that are difficult, isn't it? It's the down bits where you're kind of going, oh, God, I don't know. And maybe I, maybe I don't have to be doing this because it, it's no secret that Lance's you know, family is very well off and 
maybe he doesn't have to. He could get a job in the business, maybe. But he likes his outdoor sports. He likes his skiing, of course, famously. <laughs> Was it mountain biking? He broke his wrists. Um, so he's out. He's an outdoor active type. And I think he's a very good skier as well. So talented. But this has to be it. To the exclusion of everything else, Formula One. And that's where um, I think we're starting to see a little bit of that in, in Lance. You know, that this is now a thing that he wants in his life. He wants to show that he can cut it at the very highest level in, in a sport like this in Formula One. And, and I think that love of what you're doing is very important because it, it makes you enthusiastic. It makes you give extra time to it. And so, yeah, I think he's, and he's getting much more experience too. So he's becoming quite a valuable asset in terms of himself. Damon, let's break this down. Would Lance Stroll, if his dad wasn't mega wealthy, is he good enough to warrant a place in Formula One? I think so, yeah. yeah. I would agree. I think that the version of him that we're seeing now, we haven't seen as much strength in depth on the Formula One grid as we're seeing this year, maybe ever. Because I think Logan Sargent is a great addition. Uh, you know, he was very quick when he was alongside Oscar Piastri in Formula 3. And he's replaced Nicholas Latifi, who was a pay driver. Whereas, and I think Lance is, he deserves his place. And now he just needs to get some wind in his sails, get some momentum and it'll come. I think the more interesting question for me is what is someone's ultimate potential? I think Lance has got the natural ability. I don't think as we as he stands today, he is a future world champion standalone on his own merits in the same way that Max Verstappen and Lewis Hamilton are. He'd be knocking spots off of Fernando Alonso if he was that person. If you want to go to the next level, then that's what you've got to start doing. Speaking from my own experience, I had other levels that I had no concept of until I really was forced into those situations and had to deliver. And I know that there's more potential in every driver then they realise. Um, the question is, how do you untap that potential? Um, and, it, and it takes an awful lot of commitment and an awful lot of sacrifice. Well, I think we saw it with Lance on his pole position lap in Turkey. I think that was a surprise to pretty much everyone in the paddock, that level of performance. Yeah, but it has to be maintained. It has to be sustained, doesn't it, over, over time. It's no good just the, the blip, the one the, the one up event. So he'd have to make his ambition this year to really get there, he'd have to set his goal as ending Fernando Alonso's career. Now, that sounds brutal, but that's what George Russell is trying to do. <laughs> you know, that's what Nika Hulkenberg's trying to do with, uh, with Magnussen. You have to establish yourself as the undisputed king, number one, in that team. All right. No easy task. But I still think he warrants a place in Formula 1 because they're only... Two, two or three Max Verstappens and Lewis Hamiltons and, and, and you can still be a very good racing driver and deserve a place. And I think he's on that list. Yeah, OK. If he really wants to know the answer, then he'd have to go and drive for a different team. Then he'd be able to escape all those issues. You know, he'd have to, he would sink or swim. Thanks, Anton, for that question. And, um, well, I think we've got some more. So um, keep them coming. Hi, it's Brendan from Virginia. You guys travel all over, but I was wondering if there was a place you really love to go to the most, you know, where they have great food, uh, experiences, the culture, racetrack itself. I'm hoping to go to a race one day, fingers crossed. So any tips would be really great. Thanks so much. Bye. Brendan, yes. Where do we like going to? Well, we're very lucky, aren't we? We go all over the place and we get the chance to sample 
these cultures and these countries. And you know what? I don't really want to answer this because I don't really want to say that this is the one I prefer above all the others because what I like is the difference. I like the variety. Who'd have thought of going to Baku? We didn't. And then I've been to Baku. It's, it's quite interesting. And I, and I saw a fantastic documentary about Azerbaijan by a, a famous historian woman on telly. And she got a bit further away than the racetrack. And it does look an absolutely stunningly beautiful country. So lots more to explore. We don't get the time to do quite all of that. But going to China, Singapore, you know, we're Australia. When I first went to Japan, I found it exhausting and maybe it's because of the jet lag but it was such a busy place and it seems very in, it seemed very industrial but what a fascinating country that is and i want to see more of that and i didn't i hadn't had a chance yet to go and see more of that but even when you were racing you didn't stop off and spend time in tokyo or yeah tokyo climb yeah. mount fuji or... i didn't climb mount fuji no i haven't been to mount fuji i haven't been to kyoto and i want to see that and um, and it seems mad you go all this this, this way and you don't see the the key points we're always in such a rush i keep saying it to you we are always in such a rush and and we should spend time i also think come on, i'm going to stick up for brendan here he's saying hills stop sitting on the fence if you're not going to give me your favorite destination give me a top three in no particular order it's a hot summer's day okay it's a lovely english summer get a tent or a caravan okay so we're at silverstone suddenly yeah. <laughs> i can find your place in the in the have a great weekend camping at silverstone you do actually do that don't you you stay at silverstone each year yes well i, I get a very expensive motorhome type <laughs> caravan and just put it in the brdc <laughs> campsite and i and I, I sleep next to uh, lewis hamilton i very rarely see him uh, and um i sleep next to him i mean in the caravan the caravan's next to it so yeah does his music keep you awake does he i don't know go on what's it like being in the caravan next i've known anything now yeah he's a he's a very quiet camper he keeps himself to himself he's He's a kind of a very shy creature. He, um, you know, he might come out like a like a dormouse at night or something. Anyway, that's Silverstone. I think that's that's worth putting on the list. Brendan, I I, I want to say Austin because uh, obviously you're from the US, and I hope if you're going to go to a Grand Prix, you go there because I think brilliant racetrack, exciting city, great places to eat. But if I were to give you my three favourites, they all begin with M. Melbourne, Monaco, Montreal. I'm going to add another one. Go on, give me another M. Mexico City. Well, Mexico, yeah, it's great. Vibrant. I mean, God, what a place. But I mean, Melbourne, Monaco, Montreal. Melbourne, because it's a stunning city. Um, I love being in Australia. Uh, Monaco, because it's about as unique as you can get winding those cars through that principality. And, and Montreal, because the vibe. It's any, any city that gets overtaken by the race, as in just becomes consumed by the race, is a, is a great place to go. And those the three M's are like that. Silverstone, it's not a city, but it obviously uh, gets completely overtaken by the race. And maybe Vegas. That's not an M. doesn't begin with an M, does it? We haven't been to Vegas yet, so we, don't, we can't judge it. All we can do is say it's almost certainly going to be the biggest show on earth in terms of Formula One. And we've got time for one more. Let's have our last Ask the Nation question of the week. Hi, guys. It's Russ Williams here from Guildford in the UK. Um, my question, my uh, F1 Nation question is regarding Mercedes. Uh, obviously, we've seen the car this year uh, not be that great. It wasn't last year either. Uh, the drivers and the team will say they have confidence it'll get better and they know what to do to improve it. 
But I just wondered if you're really sure about that, because I know Mercedes have lost some really good people over the last couple of years. And I just wondered what you think about their actual capability to make it better. They don't seem to know the right direction and how to make it work, or perhaps they do. But I'm just keen to see what you think. Thanks, guys. Russ, thanks for that. I don't think Mercedes problems are anything like as bad as they want us to believe. Do you remember after the first race in Bahrain when Toto Wolff, uh, you know, uh, wrote a message to the fans? He was very negative in the, in the media after the race, as was Lewis, saying that he had no feeling for the car. He was sitting too far forward, all of those things. But ultimately in Formula One, the stopwatch never lies. And look at the last two races. The gap to uh, Red Bull in Australia was, what, 0.2 of a second in qualifying? I think that's what George Russell was behind. And it was the same as that in Saudi. Admittedly, that was Sergio Perez on pole and he made a mistake on his final Q3 run and there was no Max Verstappen involved. But, you know, a car that's only 0.2 of a second off a Red Bull is not a bad racing car. So for me, the starting point isn't that bad. Can they improve it? Yes, absolutely they can. It's just a question of how much. And they're talking about changing the concept and they've had this period between Australia and Baku to do that. Toto Wolf is talking very positively about the gains that they've made, but equally no one else is standing still. Everyone else is going to be using this, this gap to improve as well. So in conclusion, I think they will close the gap. They will win races but I can't see them beating Red Bull over the balance of the season. Let's be a little bit optimistic and say that Red Bull hit a glass ceiling. They've pretty much got the championship done and dusted, but they need to split the resources and make sure they don't overspend and and then think about next year. There's nothing in the cost cap that says the money you spend this season has to be spent on this year's car. So as far as I'm aware, so basically the resources may, may decide to sacrifice some victories towards the end of the season in, in, in favour of investing in next year's car. So, yeah, it may be that the others push and spend all of their resources unwisely on trying to beat Red Bull towards the end of the season. And that's another fascinating dimension, isn't it, to this this new era, which is we don't know how it's going to pan out. We don't know how much it's going to work. But the theory is that, you know, that teams will catch up. We might have the situation with Aston Martin is, is winning races at the end of the season. That's an interesting battle. So Mercedes are currently third in the Constructors' Championship, nine points behind Aston Martin. Who comes out top of those two teams will be fascinating. I think I'd put my money on Mercedes. I think. I would too. I, would, I still would put my money on Mercedes. I'd be, I mean, I've been shocked and surprised by Aston Martin's speed. So maybe, maybe that's, this is the new paradigm and we're not really, you know, we're not really adjusting our brains yet properly to how this is going to work it's no good me saying i don't know is it i've got to say what i know and what i what i know is we don't know anything just yet (laughs) well thank you very much for your question russ i hope we've gone some way to answering it for you and thank you to everybody who sent their questions in quick reminder for those of you who want to get involved a voice note and send it to the following email address f1nation at f1.com And we will answer some of your questions in future episodes. 
Now, let's check in with our F1 Fantasy League, the F1 Nation World Championship. If you haven't joined yet, you still can. Search for the league name or use the league code in the description of this episode. And after three rounds, the top three looks like this. In first, a team called Scuderia with four R's. Not sure how you say that. But they've got both Red Bull and both Aston Martin drivers in their team, along with Alfa Romeo's Joe Guan Yu. Aston and Red Bull are their constructors, so that's a very strong team. In second place is Silverstone 2022. Well done to you guys. And in third, the brilliantly named Beans Mean Science, who curiously do not have Carlos Science in their team. If you're not in the UK, that is a pun on an advertising slogan for a baked bean company. There are now nearly 900 teams in our league and our team, F1 Nation Racing, is 275th. Top half of the table, we'll take that for now. Our team is currently Verstappen, Alonso, Perez, Piastri and Albon with Red Bull and Aston Martin as constructors, but we will change that before Baku. And remember, you can start playing F1 Fantasy whenever you like and it's totally free to play. Just search online for F1 Fantasy to sign up, then choose your constructors and drivers using a $100 million budget. Then join our league to compete against us and our listeners. Search for the F1 Nation World Championship. Well, Damon, it's been great to chat on Easter Monday. What are you up to for the rest of the day? Preparing, I suppose, for the next exciting instalment of Formula One, which is coming up very shortly. It is indeed. Well, look, thank you to everybody who is listening to the show and we'll be back next Monday with some more fun and games. But for now, this has been F1 Nation, produced by Formula One and Audio Boom Studios. 